Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm the lead pastor around here. I have one job. My one job is to provide clarity. Would you turn to the person beside you? Please turn to the person beside you and say, clarity helps me move forward. All right, you are sitting beside someone who, based on their own confession of faith, needs clarity, helps us. Clarity creates momentum. It helps us move forward. Amy and I, uh, we lived in a college, the town we went to college in for a few years, and we also lived in a, a seminary town. So I've been involved with many moves, helping people move. And there are two types of moves. Type number one. Will you help me move? Yes. When are you moving? Saturday. I'll see you then. There'll be pizza or something. Cool. You show up Saturday. You knock on the door. You open the door. What? Thought you said you were moving. Someone clearly lives here. The TV's on. It's not even unplugged. Oh, I don't know, like, just help us move it. Just like, this will go in the truck. I'm going in the truck. I'm out of here. <clears throat> That's one type of move. And there's another type of move. Moving on Saturday. Great. I'll see you then. You open the door. There are boxes. Okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to be directing traffic on the truck. People are going to be moving heavy things in. We're going to put heavy things in the back. Hey, we couldn't get the bed apart. I'm going to need you guys to use the socket wrench and all the things and get the bed apart, and then we're going to put that here. Which person do you think has more friends? <laughs> number two. Today, we're going to try to be friend number two. We need clarity. We've been going through the book of John for the past year or so. We're hitting pause to talk about some urgent matters. What are we doing? If we don't clarify, we're going to just get some energy and, ugh, and get some energy again. Ugh, it's just going to be exhausting. We're going to really clarify who we are, what it is we're doing, what we're asking of you. And this is rooted in a few stories. In 2021, I had the privilege of being on Biola University's campus. And on their campus, they have what they call the Institute for Spiritual Formation. Oh, it was wonderful. It's like an introduction to contemplative living. It's led by John Coe. So you go there, and there's just people who care about you. They're happy to be with you. There's lots of other trained people who are there. To, they hear your story. They help you see ways you're getting stuck. And then they, they, they cater plans that you can get involved in spiritual formation and growth. I remember just walking around being like, this is incredible. Wow. I love this. I totally wish. I would, I would work. I, should, I wish I had worked at a spiritual formation institute. That would be great. I'm walking around being like, yeah, I really wish I worked at a spiritual formation institution. That would be awesome. <laughs> Wait. I do. We do. That's what we're doing. We are a factory of spiritual formation. That clarifies who we are, clarifies our priorities. What are we doing? When we say, hey, 
We want you to jump in with both feet. What are we inviting you to jump into? Spiritual formation. We're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about what that looks like. And we're going to really flesh that out. We're also going to blink. And we're just going to blink. Our eight tools that we're going to be focusing on throughout this year, throughout 2024, that we say, hey, no matter what we're doing, we're going to keep coming back to this idea of spiritual formation. It's going to be 2020 formation. Aha! Uh-huh. You laugh. But I have just been so inspired by Eli Drinkowitz. I don't know if you know this. There's a football team in town, and they just won the Cotton Bowl. I don't think you know this, because as you walk around, it's just like nothing ever happened. I mean, I thought L.A. was the most fair-weather fan base in the country, but it might be Columbia, Missouri. That's amazing. And if you watch, if you watch what's happened, Coach Eli Drinkworth, this passionate guy, he's got all these mantras. Does anybody know any of the mantras? If you know them, just shout them out. There's things he just keeps saying over and over again. STP. What does STP stand for? STP. Something to... Yeah. So you hear this guy saying, Hey! We're not blue bloods. We haven't had anything given to us. They've had it given to them. We're a wilderness brotherhood. And I'm like, oh my gosh, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I don't know anything about football, but I'm in. My hope, my ambition this morning is to stir up a desire for you to be excited about spiritual formation. At the beginning of the year, we ask lots of questions. What's my life? What's happening? I'm getting older. Is anything changing? What's God's will for my life? I'm here to tell you God's will for your life. You're welcome. God's will for your life is to be committed to the process of spiritual formation. To throw both your shoes across the river. To get some skin in the game. To say, yeah, I'm all about spiritual formation. This morning, we're going to talk about what that looks like. We're going to define it. But we also need to answer the so what question. So what? Does spiritual formation even matter? Who cares? We live in a toxic culture. We live in a toxic culture. That is not coming from a Baptist fundamentalist preacher from Arkansas. That is coming from a secular psychiatrist in Toronto. In a recent talk, Gabor Mate was describing what he believes is a toxic culture. And he used this example. He says, if you're trying to grow grow organisms in a lab, like in a broth, and, and you have these organisms and you leave it and you come back in a few days. I'm so nervous talking about this. I have no idea what I'm talking about. If you come back in a few days and nothing has grown, if the organisms have died, you would say, well, that, they're in a toxic culture. It cannot support life. It cannot sustain life. It's a toxic culture. We live in a toxic culture. So much around us is not supporting life. It is draining life from us. Has anyone in, in here ever been in a gas station on a Monday through Friday morning? You know what I'm talking about, that we live in a toxic culture. I call it the morning, what do I call it? I call it the morning gas station syndrome. This, uh, this Wednesday, I dropped Bowie off at preschool and I had to get gas. And so I pull into a high, I won't say where I pulled into. Pulled into a gas station about 100 yards from here. And 
this SUV, like, yeah, I have to stop, and they, and then this other person is frantically putting on makeup, and then, and then this other car comes in, and like, and just like, if you, if you were to just drop somebody in that situation, you would not be surprised if with no context they came to the conclusion, everybody at this gas station works at a nuclear power plant, and they just received a text that said, if you don't get to the office in three minutes, it's going to blow. We're all in this massive hurry to go somewhere. Where? To our desks. Fill out a spreadsheet. It's a toxic culture. It's not life-giving. You know how many ads you see every day? Don't believe what everybody says. Like some people, I Googled it. It's like 10,000. I just did some math. That's like an ad every six seconds. I don't think that's reasonable. But you see a lot of ads throughout the day. If everywhere you go, people are trying to sell you something, after a while, what do you start to think about yourself? I'm just a commodity. What do people want from me? They want my money. Church wants my money. Jeff Bezos wants my money. Why? That's my value in the world. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to make what I can, can what I make, and sit on my can. It's a toxic culture. We live in a toxic culture. It's not a life-giving culture. Look, even, even just the activity of trying to find out what's happening in that culture, we all have these places that we go to. They're called your news feed. All you're trying to do is find out what's going on. If you spend too much time in your news feed, you know what they call that? I didn't come up with this. They call it doomsday scrolling. Why do they call it that? Because we live in a toxic culture. Different people are going to label the toxicity differently. Conservatives are going to say, well, you know what? It's the breakdown of the family. Progressives are going to say, you know what it is? It's the evil of capitalism. And we're left in the middle as followers of Jesus being like, ah, I don't know what to do. How do we survive a toxic culture? How do we navigate without participating? Everybody's frantically running around. I'll be frantic. How do we participate without, or how do we survive without running? I, I knew somebody who, I'm getting out of Columbia. I'm like, oh, okay, why? Oh, it's just too wicked. Where are you going? Wyoming. I've been to Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to find what you're looking for there. Right? That's, but that's an option someone says. Oh, everything's bad. I'm out. There's another option, and I, I think it actually might be the worst option, is to just complain. You know, everything's a mess. Let me just point it out to you. Kids these days, they're out of control. You know, no respect. Just a mess. How do we survive a toxic culture and not participate, not run, and not complain. Spiritual formation. Jesus lays out a vision for how we can be life-giving in a toxic culture. How when everything around us is practicing decreation, is tearing things apart, is taking life away, we can be life-producing. We can be life giving. You can be Jesus to your friends and family. How do we do that? 
It's a process called spiritual formation. And we're going to be talking about it over the next few weeks. And we're going to flesh out what it's going to look like here at Compass. That it's our priority. What do we do around here? We're trying to do spiritual formation. It goes by a few names in the New Testament. So we're going to do a survey this morning of the New Testament as it relates to this idea of spiritual formation. Welcome to New Testament Survey 1. We're going to be looking at what Jesus said about this spiritual formation. And then we're going to be looking at Paul and how it was his vision. And we're going to try to answer, how can I be someone who prioritizes? What difference would this really make in my life? And in order to look at what Jesus and Paul said about spiritual formation, we have to go to Jesus' last words. So we're going to be around the New Testament this morning. But I want to first draw your attention to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And if you would, please read the purple with me. Is it purple to you? Periwinkle, thank you. Please read the periwinkle with me. Therefore, go and... Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. He gives them one charge. Go make disciples. And then if you think about the Gospels. After the Gospels, that word disciple is not used again. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus. You just told us to go make disciples and then now nobody talks about discipleship or making of disciples. What in the world? Paul never uses this word. Never once utters. Never talks about a disciple. Never talks about making disciples. It's like, who, what? I thought this was the priority. The reason I believe that Paul never talks about discipleship with his audience is because the concept of discipleship was just as foreign to Paul's original audience as it is to you and to me. We don't have discipleship. It's not a natural rhythm of our lives. You go to high school, some of us go to college, you get a job. Then you die. I mean, hopefully there's like, a, yeah, you know, a little bit more things happening in there. But that's it. We don't have a, a season. Oh, what season of life are you in? I'm in the discipleship season of life. It's a foreign concept to us. Just like I believe it was a foreign concept to Paul's original audience. But I do believe, I do believe he talks about it. And I'll show you where. Here we go. In Romans 8, 29, before Paul got the memo not to talk about Calvinism. <laughs> Here's what he said. Oh, and would you please read the uh, green. green with me? Thank you. All right. For those God foreknew, he also predestined that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When I say that I'm confident of God's will for your life, it's because of what Paul says here. He says, for those whom God foreknew. That word foreknew comes from the idea, uh, we get the word horizon out of it. God, the, the horizon is a boundary marker. God pre-set up your life. Why? That you and I, we would be conformed to the image of his son. That word conformed, we get the word formation from it. God's priority, God's hope 
God's plan for your life is that you and I would engage in this process of spiritual formation. What Jesus calls discipleship, Paul reworks and calls spiritual formation. So what is it? What are we inviting you to get uh, plugged into? We're going to use both terms today, but we're going to land on spiritual formation. When we talk about spiritual formation around here, here's what we're talking about. Developing an awareness of our union with Christ which results in the character of Christ becoming our natural response. Let me say that again. Spiritual formation. Our hope for everyone in this room, for the city of Columbia, is that we would develop an awareness of our union with Christ, which results in the character of Christ becoming our natural response. There are two parts to this understanding of spiritual formation. There's union with Christ, and then there's developing the character of Christ. There is being, and there is doing. Union with Christ. We don't use the word union a lot, but that, you can think of that word connection. We're connected. We're deeply, we're rooted. We're, we're one with Jesus. Where he ends and I begin, I don't know, it gets blurry because we're so deeply connected. And then we want to respond with the character of Jesus. That's the doing. That idea, Paul did not pull out of thin air. The idea of being with Jesus and then doing what Jesus does is a definition of discipleship. Discipleship in the first century had two parts. To be with your rabbi... And then to do what your rabbi does. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, you spent time with your rabbi. And then you would do what your rabbi does. They had a statement in the first century. And if you Google it, you'll find a popular Christian author saying it's an urban myth. Well, it's not an urban myth, and I've got the notes. It's from the Mishnah, and Dr. Lois Tverberg has done the research talking about this amazing blessing. They had a blessing in the first century. Uh, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Why was this a blessing? Because you were so close to your rabbi that you were just covered in their dust. It's the desert. We have all this literature from, from uh, rabbis that is like, what do we do? When our, when our rabbi goes to the bathroom, do we follow him in there? It's like, I don't know. But they just had such a strong desire to be with their rabbi. That comes straight out of scripture. That's what Jesus is talking about. Listen to Mark 3, 14 and 15. He appointed 12. That's 12 disciples. Hang on. I tried to do this. Let me see. It's uh, Peter, James, and John, APB. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Oh, JTJ, Thaddeus, James, son of Alphaeus, Thomas, and the two crazy ones, Simon the Zealot, Judas. Is that 12? Woo! All right. All right. You can teach an old dog a new trick. I didn't know that till Friday. I was like, oh, there's 12. He appointed 12 that they might, what? Be with him? Oh, my goodness. And that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Do you see that there? To be with your rabbi. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And what? To do what he did. What did he do? He preached. He drove out demons. That's discipleship. That's God's will for our life. And we need to have both of those components. There are temptations. There are personalities in this room. Some of us are naturally going to really resonate with one side of that. 
Like, man, I like the doing, right? I'm an activist. Tell me what to do. Tell me which brick to throw at what building, and I am in. Shoot first. Maybe we'll get around to questions. And there's others who are like, no, 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 no. Let's just be with Jesus. Let's just, we're just going to contemplate. We're just going to, we're, we're going to write about it. We're going to journal. We need both. Without both, we're going to get lopsided. Here's what happens when we don't have both. Uh, the vertical axis here is the focus. If we just focus on our union with Christ, and then the horizontal axis would be if we just focus on formation. Now again, before you look at this, come back to me. Come back for a second. Come back. Before, don't. Come back. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. I am tearing asunder what God has joined together. God's vision for spiritual formation is both being with Jesus and doing what Jesus does. You can't really tear those things apart. All right, but I'm tearing them apart to talk about just temptations we face. So when I say some of us focus too much on union with Christ, I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's possible. I'm talking about when we focus just on the being and we just ignore the doing. That's what we're describing here. That becomes the top left quadrant. If we focus on grace, I'm, just, I'm loved by Jesus. That typically leads to stagnation. It's, an, it's a chaotic recipe for growth. I'm loved by Jesus. Mom has cancer. I'm loved. If we focus on just that grace, just that we're loved, what does that lead to? It easily, quickly can lead to a temptation to being self-focused. My world's fine. I'm loved. It also can lead to what I call silver bullet thinking. I don't know the etymology of that phrase, silver bullet. Is it the Lone Ranger? Right, you have a silver bullet. You're like, I have this one thing that will fix everything. Life is a little more nuanced than that. Likewise, in the bottom right quadrant, if we solely focus on the formation, on the doing, we're going to lead to left brain thinking. Just tell me what to do. We don't need any of those feelings, that love stuff. Step one, step two, give me a checklist. I'll check it off, baby. Which leads to a roller coaster of pride and despair. Pride, woo! This maturing stuff is easy. How come everybody can't do this? And despair, oh boy. Don't look at my internet search history. Which, that roller coaster will lead to burnout. If you think you can grow as a Christian without either focus on union with Christ or focus on formation, you're going to live in the bottom left quadrant, you're just going to be aimless. You know, just kind of thinking in the box of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. All right? Somebody's forming you. Maybe Jeff Bezos, maybe somebody else. But to say like, no, 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 no. I'm not being formed. I'm a rational creature going through this world. I'm just going to kind of navigate. That's aimless. It's a recipe for chaos. We want to live in the top right quadrant where we are focused on being with our rabbi, that union with Jesus. Your love ideas, you're connected to him. And we're focused on, and we want to spontaneously grow the character of Jesus in us. Both of those things. There are some unhelpful ideas if you live in some of these quadrants. If you spend your time in the top left quadrant, you're going to hear an unhelpful idea like this. You may have heard this. And if it's on your car, it's like a bumper sticker. I didn't see. I don't know. I'm not picking on anyone. If it is, I'm sorry. There's an unhelpful phrase. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I find this phrase wildly unhelpful. 
I can see where it may have come out of. Like, you know, it could have come out of a conversation like, oh, you Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, no, 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 no. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. But this is a recipe for stagnation. It's very wonderful to be forgiven. Oh, it's beautiful. To know that we have contributed to the decreation, to the toxic culture, and that God sees that and says, I forgive you. You're loved. You're forgiven. That's wonderful. Now what? I think a more helpful expression of this would be, Christians aren't perfect, but we're learning to love our neighbor more than we did last year. Christians aren't perfect, but we're becoming more kind each month. See, the danger, the danger with that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, is it can actually, ironically, it can lead to the bottom right quadrant, that left brain pride and despair. And you've heard it. You've maybe even met some of these people. They call themselves mature Christians. We try to be very careful around here about language. Words matter. You will not hear us talking about mature Christians. You will hear us talking about maturing Christians. The difference is that mature Christians is almost like a class of people. And it's very difficult to, to argue with someone who's achieved this class of mature. You know, Craig, I don't really like the lines in the parking lot. Oh, why is that? I don't think they're very hospitable. But you know what? You should listen to me. I'm a mature Christian. Wow. Mature Christians. I, that phrase implies that you've hit this spot that you hit this kind of smooth sailing of maturity. That is not how we navigate our relationship with brokenness and sin. The picture I have in my mind of maturity is a, a baggage carousel at the airport. If you've ever been at an airport with a baggage carousel, which I think excludes Columbia, is there a carousel? I've only been in the parking lot. I was like, where's the airport? Like, You're here. But at other airports that have baggage carousels, you'll be waiting at the baggage carousel, and then there's inevitably, there's always one of those. There's a cardboard box. For whatever reason, someone didn't buy a suitcase. And so there's a cardboard box with, like, skis sticking out of it and a laptop, and it's taped all together. And you're like, ugh. And it goes by. And you're like, oh, glad that's gone. And then there's another one that, wha-boom, comes. It's got these, like, metal spikes on it, like it's a Ben-Hur chariot. And you're like, ah, that's going to bump. That's going to ruin my suitcase. Glad that's gone. And then you wait, and it comes back. Man, I, 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 anger really had a foothold in my life. Glad that's gone. I'm a mature Christian. It comes back. Man, I really struggle with lust. Don't worry, I installed covenant eyes. Now I'm a mature Christian. It comes back. I really struggle with bitterness with my mom. But don't worry, I'm a mature Christian. You don't have to live long till the baggage carousel keeps coming back. What do you do? Spiritual formation. Both sides of this. Listen to the definition again. Developing an awareness of our union with Christ. That is the foundation. That's the white on the page. Don't blow past it. If you do, you're not a Christian. 
developing our awareness of our union with Christ, which results in the character of Christ becoming our natural response. Our natural, we get faster at that. We don't, you don't arrive, you work toward it, it's aspirational. I want to give you one more verse about how Paul talks about this. And we're going to continue our survey. He, that's Jesus, is the one we proclaim. Listening to all the ing verbs. Admonishing and teaching with all wisdom so that we may present to everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. We're shooting toward maturity and we've got some ing verbs as we do it. We're teaching, we're admonishing. It doesn't say, hey, we admonished and we taught. We keep coming back. Why? Because it's a baggage carousel. Formation, you never arrive. And that's Paul's vision. There's five verses. There's five verses in the book of Galatians that really just unpack Paul's vision for spiritual formation. I want to give them to you as you write them down. Galatians 1, 4. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, listen to what Paul says. He says this, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He's agreeing with our secular psychiatrist. It's a toxic culture. So he's writing to the Galatians. Here's the first step of spiritual formation. Jesus rescued us from this present evil age. I want you to notice this though. What book did we just read from? Galatians. It's, an, it's, it's written to the churches in Galatia, not the churches in heaven. Jesus rescued us from this present evil age. And we're here. We didn't go anywhere. It's not about leaving. It's not about escaping. We're here. How do we survive? How do we thrive? How do we be life-giving in a toxic culture? Well, he keeps unpacking this idea of discipleship to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 2.20, that's our second verse for Paul's vision. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is union with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. If you think about a tree, you can graft branches onto a tree. You can take a branch that's not part of that tree and you can make it part of that tree. And then the life-giving energy that flows from that tree flows into that branch. Jesus lives in us. That is Paul's vision for the Christian life. That means our desires, our hopes, our fears, our wants, Jesus lives in them. He is working through our lives. That creates a natural question. I remember explaining this once to a man. said, oh, so you think you're God? I was like, oh, what? No, I don't think so. Well, you say if your desires come from Jesus, everything you want is good. Remember the baggage carousel. Galatians 3. This is Paul's words, not mine. Please remember, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Paul has said this. You got Jesus living inside of you. You're going to be life-giving in this present toxic age. Then what does he go on to say in verse, our third verse? Galatians 3, 1, 2, 3. Hey, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing and through hearing? Are you so foolish, having begun by the means of the Spirit, 
Are you now trying to be perfect by means of the flesh? We don't always get it right. We can act like foolish Galatians. Jesus lives in us. We're deeply loved. We don't always respond with the character of Jesus. We don't always do what our rabbi would do. But there's hope. Well, how do we get there? Do we try harder? Listen to this. Galatians 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are not against the law. What's the fruit of being with our rabbi? Love. What's the fruit of abiding with Jesus? Joy. If you were to try to pretend you were a tree, and say, all right, I'm going to grow fruit. Here we go. Grow! Just grow! Fruit! Fruit, banana, I'm a banana tree. Grow. It's a fool's errand. You can't produce fruit by effort. You've produced fruit through your connection to Jesus, through abiding. Being with our rabbi results in the character of Jesus. We need both of these things. Now, throughout church history, priests, pastors, everybody has struggled with, all right, we're talking about spiritual formation. There's a, there's a, all right, let's all get involved in this. And then they've all been frustrated because they're like, people don't do this. And so they kind of like rearrange their theology. They're like, all right, well, we're all, we, everyone should be involved in spiritual formation. And then people are like, well, okay, maybe we'll, we'll develop two classes of Christians. There's like the clergy. So the clergy, yeah, they should definitely be involved. And then there's like the laity, like the regular average everyday Joe. The bar is very low for them, all right? They can, you know, they can be, they can roll in here drunk and, you know, okay, sorry. We'll just kind of try to, you know, change the bar. As I read the New Testament, when Jesus talks about discipleship, when ta Paul talks about spiritual formation, we're all on the same coursework. We're in class together. That can feel daunting. Until you start to see just how radical Jesus was when it came to spiritual formation. Listen to this. Would you please read with me, what color did we say it was, Diana? Sage. Would you please read the sage with me? As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. You just read some of the most radical words from the first century. In the first century, if you read rabbinic material, you will not find rabbis wandering around looking for disciples. There was a process by which discipleship started. And it started at a very young age. Remember in one of the Star Wars, I don't remember which one, there's too many, but there was one where like someone wanted to be a Jedi and they're like, it's too late, you're too old. I think it was Luke Skywalker. Yeah, we would all be too old to enter the process of discipleship. Started at a very young age. And then if you stayed in that process and became the best of the best, you'd go to a different school. And then if you did really well in that school, you would find a rabbi or a rabbi would rather find you and you'd get to become their uh, their disciple, at which point you would take on their yoke or their teaching. Jesus, though, is one of, as I'm aware, only two rabbis. First was Hillel. 
Hillel said that God can make a disciple out of anybody. And then Jesus of Nazareth went, and I want you to see this. What are Simon and Andrew doing? Fishing. What's that called if you're working during the day? A job. Why do they have a job? Because they weren't anybody's disciple. This is the B class. These are the rejects. You're like, well, I can't get involved in discipleship. Mm. Are you open to another perspective? Discipleship is not about reaching this level of like, oh, hey, I've arrived. It's a process. And Jesus invites all of us into this formation process. A process where we spontaneously respond with the character of Jesus. What would it look like? We're all kind of like, Christmas is still fresh in our memory. What would it look like if next year at Christmas, when that in-law explodes, and you spontaneously, your gut reaction is love, joy, peace. What would it look like at your workplace when everybody is just dying, the cubicles are just, they're taking my life away, and your boss comes in, makes a ridiculous demand of you, and you're able to navigate that with patience, spontaneously. What would happen? People would see Jesus. That's what's at stake. You are going to be the only Jesus some people ever see. So this is creating eight, eight tools for us. Remember, I love Eli Drinkowitz. I mean, I don't know him. He may be a monster. He's probably lovely. All right. But I don't know anything about him. But I love the mantras. So we're going to try to like, we're, we got a mantra around here. Remember the first century? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. How do we, Compass Church, get dusty? We want this place to be so dusty that we have to hire a cleaning crew. We just want, we want all of us to be engaged in this formation process where we're covered in the dust of our rabbi. So we have eight tools. Eight tools to help us get dusty. These are eight things that we're going to keep coming back to throughout the year. As we start a new sermon series, we're going to come back to the spiritual formation process. As we go do justice in our city, it's, it's through this filter. Eight tools that we're like, hey, here's what we're doing. There's no midterm. I know the number eight is huge. We're just blinking these. You don't have to remember these, but I want to just make you aware. These are what we're doing. Clarity. You, your neighbor is helped by clarity. Here you go. This year, we have one priority. Our one priority is spiritual formation. We are going to be a spiritual formation factory. That's our priority. Galatians 4.19. Paul said this, I have the pains of a mother in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's us. Until Christ is formed in us. That's our one priority. That priority has two parts. How do we do this? We're going to be with our rabbi. And then we're going to do what our rabbi does. We're not going to just do one of those things. Let's get more programs. You know what we really need to grow here? We need programs. I'm not knocking programs. I love programs. We're not knocking it. We're going to, but this is the priority. We're going to be with our rabbi. Do what our rabbi does. Luke laid this part out last week. This has three practices. Scripture. Prayer and community. We are going to orient our life around God's word. Why don't we have prayer days where for 24 hours somebody is in this building praying for you? We're going to do things like that. And it's going to be community. 
You cannot be known on a Sunday morning. It's not the point of Sunday morning. You gotta get into community. This happens in four environments. The gathering on Sunday morning, in connection groups, as we serve, it's a great way to learn to be like Jesus, to serve, and as we bless, as we break out of these four walls and head into our city. You may know this, but we're gonna take five steps to our 9,600. Who are our 9,600? Within a one mile radius of compass, there are 9,600 people who self-identify as unchurched. What does it mean to be unchurched? It means you haven't had a meaningful relationship with a church in three years. I don't know any of these people. I don't know motivations, but I imagine there are some people who are just like, don't know. There's some people who have given up. We're going to take steps toward reaching our 9,600. How do we do that? Bless. If you've been around here, that means we begin with prayer. We listen to our neighbors. We eat together. We serve them, and then we share our story. We have six resources that we're going to give you every Sunday. Six resources. The resources spell repair. What are they? Come back next Sunday. Ah, see what I did there? We have seven values that shape this place. The seven values spell out C-O-M-P-A-S-S. And then we have eight skills that we think maturing disciples cultivate. Please, not mature. Not mature. Maturing the process. That's this year. And this matters. How many people in your life don't see Jesus? My good friend, Frederick Nietzsche, once said, and he's right, he's, Frederick Nietzsche is the guy who unchained the earth from the sun when he said, God is dead. And no, that stupid movie didn't understand it. Ooh, sorry. Ah. Here's what Nietzsche said about Christians. He was very critical of organized faith base. He thought it was a system of oppression. If your belief makes you blessed, he said this to Christians, then appear to be blessed. If these glad tidings of your Bible were written on your faces, you wouldn't need to insist so obstinately on the authority of that book. He's right. What's he saying? If we had responded with the character of Jesus to life's obstacles, Fred would believe. Spiritual formation matters. It matters so deeply. And we can all be involved in it. Two stories. My wife and I, I moved, we moved. She was six months pregnant. We moved back to Los Angeles. It was the second time the city had kicked me out. I decided to come back. And we moved because someone told me a story. Stories can be powerful. I was talking to my wife's boss. And I was like, hey man, I don't know what to do. Like, I want to go back to LA, but my wife is pregnant. Like, there's just too much feels like to risk. What do I do? And he told me this story. He said, when I was a kid, I grew up in Colorado and I used to hike everywhere. And it was one wintry day, we went on a hike. And it was awesome and it was beautiful. But as we got out, the sun was starting to set and it started to snow. And I got very afraid. It's very dangerous to be out on a mountain in, a, in the winter. I don't know if you know that. There's no mountains here. But now you've been told. And so he's walking and he comes to a river. And he's excited because he knows across that river is a field. And across that field is his house. So he comes to the river and he takes his shoes off. And he ties them together and he throws them across the river. Why? That's why I asked him, why did you do that? 
I needed to have skin in the game. I knew it would be hard to get across that river, and I didn't want to chicken out. I needed skin in the game. What's your skin in the game? Here at Compass Church, we have for a long time tried to be a safe place for people who have been burned by church, and we still want to be that. We want to be a place where it's an easy on-ramp. Whatever your church story, whether you're skeptical of faith, you're engaging for the first time, whether you've been to church, you're like, ah, man. For in many ways, for many people, we are their last stop before they give up on Christianity. Love that. And as a result of that, we've been timid about asking people to jump in. We've been like, nah, you know, hey, yeah, yeah, you're still finding your space. You be you. We're asking you to throw your shoes across the river with us. We're giving our lives to formation. We're saying we're going to be with our rabbi and do what he does. Where is that going to lead us? I don't know. The clarity I can provide you, though, is we're a spiritual formation factory, and this is what we're doing, and it's what we're going to do. Because it's what the church has always done. What's a small town around here that, like, Colombians like to look down their nose at? What is it? All of them? All of them? Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. There's some feelings there. What's a small town? What would you say? What is it? Eldon. Eldon. Perfect. Whoever said Moberly, that's, uh, that's on you. I didn't say that. Somebody over there hates Moberly. In John chapter 1, Jesus calls a disciple from Eldon. Philip. John chapter 1, we learn that Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida, archaeologists, I just learned in between the services, didn't even believe it existed to the 60s because it was so small. It was a small fishing community of about 600 people. It was Eldon. No one cared. It was irrelevant. Remember discipleship? You gotta, you gotta, it's, a, it's Harvard. It's MIT. You got to get in there. Jesus calls Philip from the middle of nowhere, from Eldon. Church tradition, again, we're stepping away from the scripture, but church tradition tells us that after the resurrection, after, after Philip heard the words, go into all the nations and make disciples, he took his family, and Philip from Eldon, he ended up in Aeropolis. Aeropolis is in uh, Asia, Asia Minor, I think it's like modern-day Turkey, but it was a major city. It was a major, uh, there were a lot of Roman garrisons there. There were hot baths, cold baths. It was a major, uh, there was a lot of gambling, the major city. Our Eldon, Missouri kid finds himself in Vegas. And in order to be anybody in the city, you had to walk through a gate, the gate of Domitian. He was the Caesar, and in order to, walk, to do business, to buy and sell, you had to walk through that gate, and then they'd put a stain on your hand. That, that, that stain on your hand was assigned to everybody that you were allowed to do business in there because you walked through that gate. And by walking through that gate, you proclaimed Domitian Estin Curios. Domitian is Lord. He's God. Christians, early Christians, by the way, thought they called that mark the mark of the beast. Oh. Church tradition tells us that Philip and his wife, with their kids, would walk to that gate and enter the city by going around the gate. It was a bold statement. No. Yesu estin curios. Jesus is Lord. He'd walk around the gate. The penalty for doing this is crucifixion. 
I don't know if you know this, but Roman society was not uh, based on a foundation of love. When you're crucified in Rome, what they would do is they would crucify your family before they crucified you. They'd make you watch it. Philip's family knew this. As they're watching him go around the gate, tradition tells us that his wife and kids were nervous. What are you doing? What are you doing? To which Philip replied, don't worry. I once saw my rabbi feed 5,000 people. We got this. As they crucified Philip's family, tradition tells us that Philip said to them, don't worry. I saw them do this to my rabbi too. Would you close your eyes with me? I want you to pray two things as we have our eyes closed. I want you to just, with open hands, ask God, where is your Heropolis? Who are the people, who are the places that God is putting on your heart to say, I want to go be the character of Jesus there? Heropolis uh, has a church there, and they have a church there because Philip followed his rabbi. Who is God putting on your heart? Second thing I want you to pray with me is would you ask Jesus to help you take the first step? Who's your Heropolis? Can I get help with step number one? I don't know where this year is going to take us, where 2024 nation is going to take us. But I do know I do know that we're going to be with our rabbi and we're going to do what he does. And Jesus said, we will do greater things than these. God, we want to be covered in dust. Help us to get dusty. Lord, we want to experience, we want to experience your presence. We want to be with you. We want to grow in our awareness of that. And then we want to respond with your character. God, we pray that you would reveal the places that you're calling us into and you'd give us the courage to take the first step. In Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.